everyone. Welcome to Cricket with an Accent. Uh, this is our fourth podcast in less than 20 days and we have good reasons because there's a lot of cricket being played and India-Australia is the rivalry that makes, I think, uh, audio content. Uh, people crave more for it, uh, even in my small, humble podcast. This is Sakib Ali, keeping the conversation alive. And today we have a, a dynamic duo of uh, Sanket Singhbal and Abhu Tyagi. Again, really no need for me to introduce them because if you are on cricket Twitter, you see these guys you know, giving very valuable insights, opinions. And for Sanket, it's some sort of a, a homecoming because, you know, me and Sanket have done a lot of these podcasts together. And uh, it's really a good uh, moment to have him back, of course. You know, the result could have been better for him and, you know, Australian fans, but it's always a delight. So let me welcome these guys to the show. Sanket, Abu, how are you guys? Yeah, I mean, not too bad, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I could have been very well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we, we'll try to, uh, you know, address some of the facts, some of the happenings. And in there, there'll be some narratives because I, honestly, I don't dodge narratives because we all like to dismiss them, but we live narratives in our reality. And I, I might also bring a little bit of uh, nostalgia in there because, you know, I am an old nostalgia merchant, you know, like in an ideal world. I mean, you know, I'm a lot older than you. There was, if there was no Twitter, we would never know each other. So, I'll still, you know, bring in maybe a random fact in there. But uh, let's start with India side of things. So, Abu, you can go first as an Indian fan or analyst. Uh, you know, you, you, you've already probably prepared this or said this on Twitter somewhere. Where does this win rank in the pantheon of Indian overseas wins on your watch? I don't expect you to, you know, talk about stuff that you didn't watch. But uh, how do you rate this win considering all... Uh, that was stacked up against India. If there's a thing called like 36 all out, Virat Kohli, Mohammad Shami, Ishan Sharma, and even Rohit Sharma, you know, because those were not a surprise, his omission, but talk about four key players missing and then the toss. So, considering all these variables, uh, you can go first. Where does this rank? Yeah, I would, yeah, I would argue, I, if I speak about the 21st century, where, yeah, I would say that it's probably our second. It's a, it's either the first or second, and only Perth 2008 can compete, mostly because of everything that happened in Sydney and the implications of that. In that sense, this is very similar. You had a test in Adelaide, which was in very different ways, uh, that produced a very different, in, in a very different way, but it was, it was similarly shocking, the result in Adelaide, 36 all out, and as you said, missing four key players, including the captain. I don't think... The way I thought about it I, is that I don't remember a test where India were um, where India were underdogs like this and where we won. I mean, maybe, you know, the fourth test of those 4-0 whitewashes, we were underdogs like this. But I don't think, yeah, obviously we didn't compete in any of those. So I don't think there was, I don't remember actually for so many years of India going into a test match so heavily expected to lose. And... Yeah, it was actually a very different feeling as a fan, knowing that you're expecting a loss, especially after the toss, because I think, you know, if there was any hope for India, it was to bat first. And, you know, batting first is a major advantage in most test-playing nations and especially in Australia. So once Australia batted first, honestly, I don't think anyone, I don't think many people had a lot of hope from this test. So in that sense, it has to rank among the top one or two test test victories, uh, away test victories I've seen. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, from an older perspective, maybe Melbourne 1981 can compare 
for perhaps some of the wins in the 1986 England series. But yeah, from since I've been watching, I don't remember a test match victory. Or even, I mean, honestly, as a cricket fan, this was my second happiest moment maybe after uh, the 2011 World Cup final because of, yeah, how India... Yeah, how India weren't expected to win. No Virat Kohli, no Ishan Sharma, no Mohamed Shami. You have two debutants coming in, Boxing Day, MCG. And against an Australian team, that is high quality. I mean, obviously, as Sanketu discussed, the batting order is very fragile. But they still have Steve Smith. They still have Marnus Labuschagne. They still have the four uh, New South Wales the uh, New South Wales attack. Pat Cummins, Josh Hazelwood, Mitchell Stark, Nathan Lyon. It really doesn't get better than that in Test cricket. And for India to pull out a win like that is it's just incredible. Sure. So, Sanke, let me bring you in. And I think Abu unpacked it beautifully because I think on your on his watch, uh, this may be you know top two uh, moments for an Indian fan. And put your analyst hat on. I, I would say uh, 2003 was special. Of course, there was no uh, you know McGrath and Vaughan, but that group of, you know, the celebrated, you know, Indian group of Tendulkar, Dravid, and all those guys, they never had tasted anything. So 2003 was special for me, but I had already been told by my seniors, my dad, that how Gavaskar and crew did in 81. So break it down from a very neutral point of view, you know, X and O's for this win. How surprised were you given what Australia had after the first test? And then did you expect Rahane and men to bounce back this ferociously? And now it was just basically tailored to different cities. If you look at Adelaide and Melbourne, so four is yours. Yeah, I mean it's it's actually very difficult for me to be neutral on this one. But you know, I, 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 need, I think just you know, I think as Abu pointed out, I personally one, one thing I'd say that I wouldn't really say that India were the heavy underdogs heading into this set match. Maybe after the toss they were, but you know, I I personally felt that you know, I actually thought I was you know from an Australian point of view I was far more confident about our chances before the first test than I was after the first test because, you know, despite what happened in Adelaide, the 36 all out, you know, I think, you know, I think everyone and every analyst and every, you know, news article or match report, uh, whatever that is, you know, has been, you know, spoken about in, in the aftermath of Adelaide, I think one thing, one, there's a very common theme that, uh, of acceptance that that was just a freak aberration. You know, there was absolutely you know nothing that Indian batsmen did dramatically wrong. It was just that it was just one of those days where you know the bowling was absolutely flawless and you know, everything just caught the edge of the pad and it was it was over before you know anyone could even realize the magnitude of what had just struck the Indian batsmen. So you know I would I would personally say that you know India competed very well at Adelaide. They were you know I think the better side for majority of the Test match and it was just one freak session that and actually tilted the magistrate's way. And so I think, you know, I think after Adelaide, I, I think that India actually had more reason to be optimistic about the series than they had before Adelaide because, you know, initially at the start of the series, I thought that Australia with the first choice team and, you know, after how dominant we were last summer against Pakistan and New Zealand, you know, even though they've not historically been particularly strong oppositions in Australian conditions, but, you know, just the level of domination that we demonstrated against those sides and given that India have generally, you know, apart from the 2018 Australia tour, where, you know, we were obviously missing a few key players, India have generally struggled overseas, you know, they lost 4-1 in England, even though obviously the series was more competitive than, you know, the final scoreline messages, they lost, you know, they, they were beaten comprehensively in New Zealand earlier this year, 
we lost in South Africa as well. So I personally thought that with a full strength Australian team, India would be no match, you know, before the start of the series. But after Adelaide, you know, and you know, I was given personally a, a rude reality check. You know, our batting was just proven to be as porous as you know it was a couple of years ago. And I personally think that that was, you know, that the performance that Adelaide actually is where it really started for India. You know, if, if Australia had got a big total at Adelaide and Steve Smith had played himself into form and Manus had played himself into form, I think you might have seen a very different test match at Melbourne. But I think what, what Indian bowlers did at Adelaide, I think that was, you know, the real, really the springboard for success at Melbourne. So I personally don't agree that they were huge underdogs heading to this test match purely because I think they had, you know, laid bare the weaknesses in the Australian batting lineup, uh, you know, the previous week. So, uh, yeah, I mean, but yeah, once they lost the toss, you could probably say that you know, India ha- hadn't won a test away from home, you know, for more than a decade, uh, uh, batting second. Uh, the last test that they won, you know, batting second away from home prior to this was in Colombo in 2010 when VVS Lakshman scored a brilliant hundred on a turning pitch. And, you know, if you're talking about, the, you know, outside Asia, then the, they won in 2009, I believe, in March against New Zealand. That was a pretty ordinary New Zealand side. I think probably the last time they beat a you know, good team away from home in, in one of these Sena nations that you call it was against England at Trent Bridge in 2007 when you know, they won, I think, chasing a very similar total you know, of 67 or 70 in the fourth innings. Uh, uh, so, I think that, so I think that just tells you, you know, from a historical context, India have always been a side that, that have relied on runs on the board and then you know, the bowlers coming into their own. But this, this team, you know, uh, even in the previous cycle, uh, they, they lost all the test matches which they batted first. So uh, it was, it was it's, it's in, in that context, I think, yeah, you could say that was you know, quite a phenomenal performance by India. And mm-hmm. yeah, I, you know, I certainly did not see it coming, you know, after, after having won the toss, I personally did not see, you know, such a, you know, such a, a dramatic capitulation of the Australian batting lineup at Melbourne. On, on day one on a pitch that was, you know, not quite, you know, the usual MCG surface, but it was most definitely not 195 all-out surface. So, yeah, full credit to the Indian bowlers. Uh, they, they've been absolutely brilliant. No, I think thanks for highlighting the fact that, you know, that one uh, session in Adelaide can't undo uh, the fact that India was the better side. It could easily have been 2-0. Again, we won't go there, but we'll talk about Australia at the second half of the show. So, let's carry the conversation forward. And again, with the you know, on, on the on the Twitter side of things, there are a lot of uh, things that that float around from the moment Rahane brought in Ashwin on day one on Boxing Day, and there were comparisons what Kohli would have done, and that's a reality we live in. You know, and uh, I'm a Jinkar Rahane fan, uh, love Chiteshwar Pujara, you know, but I also felt like some of these comparisons with Virat Kohli were just unwarranted. I mean, to show him in a bad light. We'll get to that. So let's talk about Rahane, the captain, first. So, Abu, you can go first here again. Uh, three tests, three wins. Again, sample size is very small and it's not even back-to-back. He's captain three tests in four years. You know, every now and then when Kohli couldn't play the Dharamshala test and then uh, the one test in India and now this one. So, uh, dismiss any narrative and how do you see his captaincy? Did he... Uh, it's going to be unfair to say, did he live up to the expectation because he came through flying colors? But how different of a captain is he? It's pretty much Kohli's squad. Shastri's there. There's no change in regime. Kohli will be captain again when India is playing the next series after this. But talk about uh, Rahane's captaincy through the prism of what you have seen before and what happened at MCG. Yeah, yeah. So like you, I'm a huge Anand fan. 
he's i think sanket knows this i he's probably my favorite indian player of this generation so in that sense you know it was it's great to see him do well but i agree that i agree that a lot of the narratives floating around twitter and all were unfair i think i think one thing that has to be acknowledged is that the the indian team has had excellent bowling plans i mean since the start of the last of the season cycle since the tour of south africa in 2017 18 i mean we've gone through six seven overseas series and the bowlers have been excellent and there have been specific fans to each batsman i mean you saw it with um babashagan is just so in the first innings where you, uh, you had that man on the leg side with um siraj bowling to him i mean you see plans like that all the time and i think full credit must to go to um the bowling coach also um parun and obviously the entire management deserves some credit even kohli deserves credit for you know creating this fast bowling culture which has really flourished under him since he took over the captaincy and though i must say i think rani some of rani's plans were excellent i think bringing in ashwin in the 10th over was excellent i mean it's unfair to say that kohli wouldn't have done that because i think kohli did do that in edgebaston in 2018 uh, he executed a pretty similar plan but i think rahane might have been more comfortable using his spinners early and you saw that i think even jadeja came in before siraj as a third pace of bowl in the first innings which is something very unusual and i think there was i think both rahane and kohli are good captains in terms good on field captains at least i often disagree with some of kohli's selection choices but they're also very different captains i think rahane is far more attacking which is sort of ironic considering the personality that kohli has built around him and what you usually yeah. associate with rahane but i think rahane is far more attacking on field captain kohli is far more defensive but i think both i think i don't think you can look in the uh, at the bowling performances of india over the last 3 4 years and there have been very few occasions on which you could say that the captaincy was lacking or the bowling was lacking in any way whatsoever and so i think both deserve i think both deserve some credit kohli for you know starting this culture and the entire management for all these bowling plans and rahane for executing those plans on the field and obviously the bowlers deserve most of the credit for the way they bowled the accuracy the discipline yeah i think and i think what was really impressive was, was that once the partnership started to build in the first inning between labashagne um, and head uh, i think the indian bowlers were incredibly disciplined i think in the past as an indian fan you used to a partnership building overseas and you expected to you know you expect the economy rate to rise you expect the um, batting pair to dominate the bowlers but none of that happened you saw a debutant like siraj bowling with such discipline and yeah and obviously credit must also go to the india a setup and everyone and i think it's a real team effort that over that has you know started since kohli took over the captaincy that has culminated in what has to be called an excellent bowling attack sure no i think you uh, made some very astute observations again uh, compared to the way you analyze a game I, i already learned something very quickly maybe a lot of uh, listeners do i think you broke it down beautifully when you said uh it's ironic that rahane is seen as a cool calm demeanor kind of a guy and virat kohli is a in your face bravado kind of guy but the the first choice here rahane is uh, more uh, more aggressive and kohli not so i think a lot of times this is the narrative and the opinions that you know get people confused so sanket you can come in and just uh, extension to what abu just uh, broke down for us the fast bowling culture uh, you think it's a by product of uh, you know the infrastructure that india has you know the depth because the one thing is to have this culture but then one thing is to have like a debutant who came in and you know the whole situation fit like a glove 
yeah, he bowled after lunch first day. I'm talking about Mohammad Siraj, but he didn't look like playing his first uh, first Test match, and that to a huge occasion in Melbourne Boxing Day Test. So talk about that uh, uh, India's pace battery and you know the bench they have and how you know Rahane use the resources here. A few different ways, but uh, unpack it the way you feel is more appropriate. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think you know, if you, even if you look at the some of the bowlers that are coming through the, you know, the ranks at, at, at some of the age group level, you know, they, they, they've actually had uh, some really good pace pace bowlers coming through the last couple of under nineteen World Cups. There's Kamlesh Nagarkoti who's been who was quite impressive in the twenty eighteen under nineteen World Cup. There's Karthik Tyagi who's, who's played in this played in the most recent under nineteen World Cup, and it's actually a part of this India squad, you know, as as a, as a net bowler, and you know, he's he actually hit. Pukowski on the head in the in the warm-up match, which has actually caused him to, you know, miss the first couple of test matches. So I think that that, that just tells you that you know that the shift in culture that has been brought about in, in recent times in India, and yeah, I think that that obviously bodes well for them from you know as far as overseas success goes, because you know uh, I think I think I think you I think developing that culture is I think more important than you know just having that one of one one of generational cricketer that you know might just you know you can probably you know succeed for a few years while while he is there but in as long as you know you talk developed a proper culture and there is a supply chain of you know past bowlers who are coming consistently and you know, the youngsters have heroes to look up to then I think that is the ideal you know sort of springboard for long-term sustainable success so yeah I think uh, credit goes to Virat Kohli and you know even even I would say Ravi Shastri and, and and the entire Indian team management and uh, and whoever has been you know involved in in the domestic circuit as well in 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 the change of pitches which and I'm not I don't really follow Indian domestic cricket but whatever I'm I'm told that there has been a, a change in the pitches as well in domestic cricket to you know favor the fast bowlers in the last few years so mm. yeah I think credit for credit to whoever has been you know doing the work behind the scenes and obviously the fitness coaches as well who have been you know working constantly on the fitness of the bowlers. That's one of the reasons why you know they've been able to match the Australian bowlers for intensity and speed. You know, even in the last sessions of play, which is something that we don't normally associate from Indian bowlers in the past. So yeah, I think that compared to them. Okay, so thank you. Hold that thought. So let me uh, stay with you. One more question here. So again, on Twitter, you know, there are a lot of cliches that are being dismissed by a lot of knowledgeable voices. Uh, so there is no such thing as a captain's knock these days. It's a batsman's knock. So Using that token, was this Rahane's best knock, or would you compare it to the one at Lords, or is there anything the 48 in South Africa? Is there anything else that comes to mind? How do you rate this, considering the situation, the opposition bowling attack, and captaincy has to weigh on players, right? This was his first uh, go around in a away series, and he's going to be captain three in a row. So talk about his uh, his batting and the impact it had, and where does it rank in some of his uh, better knocks that you've seen? Yeah, I think I think I think Lords is probably the only knock that is comparable. You know, that was on a green top, and that was you know Rahane was probably I think only in his first year in international cricket, or rather in Test cricket at that point in time. Uh, and the Indian Indian batsman had you know, collapsed on day one on 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 a pretty difficult surface against the likes of Jimmy Anderson and Stuart Broad and England. And Rahane played a brilliant counter-attacking innings that ultimately you know paved the way for India winning the Test match. So I think that that was you know the first. You know, great innings that you know Rahane probably played in Test cricket. He scored a hundred at MCG at this very venue. 
in in 2014 as well but that was on an extremely flat surface uh, you know and that the match ended in a you know pretty boring draw in the end so yeah i think yeah, you, it would have to be you know this this knock would have to be right up there and yeah he, he yeah it was just you know especially you know in the, in the aftermath of what had happened that late and him especially running around Korea out in the first innings and the amount of pressure that he would have been under and immediately falling there after and that was the one that you know really you know set off the collapse for the indian team the first innings they you know if if, if virat kohli had had not been run out then they might well have run away with the game in the first test you know and and maybe you know got and a, a huge lead in the first innings that you know would have put the match beyond any doubt even or even even considering the second innings collapse so yeah i mean in the context of that and having you know missing virat kohli in the side you know losing a couple of key fast bowlers yeah just yeah i think it was it was it was tremendous innings and came in under pressure as well he was batting in a one position higher than normal and yeah i mean australia australia was bowling really well pat cummins bowled a brilliant brilliant spell on day 2 at at melbourne in the in the you know when he was when he was steaming in and and pujara gill actually did, did quite well to you know see off you know that spell and then rohane came in and and played up up took his time and then you know, before playing his shots it was you know it was an unrahanian like and it's also in that sense he's generally a very aggressive very counterattacking batsman this was one innings where he uh, actually had to shell his attacking instincts early on in the innings and then there was i saw a stat in cricket for that you know rahane is someone who has actually played more out of control shots in the in his first 30 deliveries uh, than any any other batsman so he's, he's generally always been a shaky starter uh, and someone has the tendency to play the ball in the air so, but this time around the captaincy and you know being the senior batsman at the side apart from pujara he acted uh, he really took upon the responsibility very well and played played a brilliant game for us okay uh, well said as always so uh, abu uh, again as a rahane fan where does this rank but more importantly i want you to focus on the comparison on twitter when rahane scores a century how he celebrates he's a muted guy we all know that so it shouldn't come as a surprise but again comparison with kohli which is i think unfair kohli is very animated and secondly the run out uh how rahane and jadeja had a little chat after the run out and again he's classy which shouldn't be a surprise but do we have to compare him to kohli every time i don't want to sound like a kohli fan because i'm not but i think even from a very neutral point of view some of these narratives have to just go away your your thought on you know his knock and then my follow up question yeah yeah i mean i would agree, i agree completely about the narratives i think yeah people uh, a lot of people want to impose their view on of kohli and then use rahane as a comparison point to make some weird criticism of kohli and i think that's unfair i think both of them have their own personalities and the way they celebrate or the way you know rahane talks to jadeja i think i think that's yeah it's just a reflection of their personalities and i mean i think one both are top class international batsmen i don't think and and very good captains as we've seen so i don't think there should be any you know criticism of them based on the of either of them based on the way they you know celebrates so i agree completely about the narratives in terms of rahane's innings i think yeah it has to rank up there i mean one thing i like to um, often bring up is that i i feel that rahane the way he batted in the west indies last year in antigua especially scored 81 and um, a century in the second innings i thought that was top class and you know tests in the west indies don't get covered as much but the bowling attack was great holder roach and um, 
Shannon Gabriel, and especially as the entire um, Indian batting lineup collapsed around him in both innings, really. I think the way he batted there was excellent. Um, I would also bring up Delhi 2015, where he scored 20 centuries on an absolute ranked turner. But again, and then there was obviously Lord 2014, as some have discussed. But yeah, I think this has to rank right up there, and I would personally rank it above. Because as Sankit said, he, you know, really, yeah, he really changed his natural game. He was far more defensive at the start. And I mean, we've seen indications of this. For example, I think even in Dharamshala, when, you know, when he captained against Australia, he played a very important 40, 45, 46, I think. Uh, and it also came at a much lower strike rate than usual. So I think there's been this tendency of Rahane that when, you know, the chips are down and when the team really needs him, he bats slightly differently. I think even... I mean, there's that famous test match in Gold 2015 where India collapsed and lost the test by 50 runs. I, I, I remember Rahane batting very well on a ranked turner, but the team just collapsed around him. And he played a very similar knockoff where he's 40 of 120, 130 before he had to attack as he was batting with the tail. So I think yeah, this is, you know, it's a reflection of the work he's done. And it's I, from a mental perspective, the effort that it took, I mean, you know, the classic Indian comparison point would be, you know, Sachin not playing a cover drive uh, in that Sydney twenty, uh, the Sydney two thousand four knock, and yeah, I, I thought it was very similar in terms of discipline. He, you know, very. I don't think until his eighties he played any flashy shots, and I think yeah, that against this sort of bowling attack, that's what you have to do. And you know, there's a there was a stat floating around um, a few months back on Crickviz which said that Rahane has the highest average of anyone um, since 2006 uh, when he plays defensive shots. So his average is the highest among any player when he plays defensive shots, which is really a reflection of the fact that he's been giving away his wicket often, you know, trying to play some flashy shot, especially early in his innings, as Sankit said, that high false shot percentage is start. So it was really great to see him, you know, tone it down, play in a far more disciplined manner and with, you know, with the support of everyone, actually, Bihari, Pant, and Jadeja, India actually managed to build a partnership, uh, managed to build a set of partnerships which we haven't seen in the last two, three tours, uh, two, three overseas tours, especially in New Zealand and the first test um, at Adelaide, except for the Rahani Kohli partnership. I actually think Rahani might have batted better at Adelaide before the run out. But uh, yeah, he, he looked more fluent than he did at Melbourne. But the amount of discipline, the amount of you know, mental effort, it must have, yeah, it must have taken him to play that knock. It's just incredible. And you have to, you can see him taking that responsibility. And hopefully this is a new phase in his career where he matures into a more senior batsman, can, you know, make some of these bigger hundreds more often. And yeah, and show I think, his class. No, definitely. I think you're on to something. Even the diehard Rahane fans would agree. In the second innings, he looked more of like Rahane of the old. Of course, the equation was different. Someone had to... He can't go in a shell there because that could have played into Australia's hand, but he attacked right away. So, you're right. I think uh, the first inning deserves a special mention for all the reasons you quoted, especially playing a role that is not, you know, all in his comfort zone. So, uh, with that, I think we have set the platform for Shubman Gill. And uh, we'll talk about Siraj a little later, but Shubman Gill first. So, Sanket, I know you were saying... Uh, I follow your Twitter account very closely because I, I learn a lot there. And you said, you know, you kind of, as an Australian fan, are bummed because you never see that kind of talent come through. 
the ranks. So again, you know, IPL and all the infrastructure and the platform and the depth. But this guy also looked like he belonged and he probably is playing, arguably, which may go down as the, you know, the best uh, Australian fast bowling attack. Some would argue, but uh, how impressive was this lad, you know, going out and mixing up you know, with the Cummins and, you know, Hazelwoods and Starks. Of course, there were like few drop catches here and there, but he stuck to his belief and his game plan and uh, he looked pretty good. Uh, quite incredible, really. I mean, you know, I, I pointed out on Twitter as well that I think he's probably the most, you know, complete 20-year-old, you know, batsman at least, you know, in, in world cricket since probably Sachin Tendulkar. And yeah, you know, I think the amount of time that he had to play the first of all is just quite incredible, really. And, you know, personally, as, as I said, you know, as an Australian fan, you know, I can only be envious because this kind of talent is something that I have not seen coming through Australian cricket for a very long, long time. You know, and yeah, I mean, he, 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 the, the full shot that he played, particularly of Mitchell Stark and the amount of control that he had and the way he was able to get on top of the bounce on a track that had a lot more bounce than you know, the usual MCG track. It's quite phenomenal for a guy on debut, you know, playing for you know, a team, you know, which is all, all just, you know, obviously in a, in a tricky situation, you know, given all the, you know, circumstances of what happened in the last test and yeah, he's, he's in, 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 there's always the you know cloud hanging around also with Rohit Sharma probably you know making a comeback in the next sense. If he got in a couple of ducks or in a couple of single digits, so there's always you know the possibility of him being him being the man to make wave, especially with India playing five bowlers. So that he was also you know playing for his place in a way, even though he was on debut. So yeah, considering all all the circumstances which he come out came out to bat, yeah, I think the the calmness that he showed, you know, despite of the drop catches, you know. And, and and the manner in which he played the first of all is some of the shots that he played just jaw dropping. And yeah, I think India got uh, got got a real talent on their hands. Uh, and, and yeah, personally, I, I still think that you know, looking looking at his technique, I still think in the long run that he might be better suited to batting in the middle order in Test cricket, especially you know in conditions like England and South Africa where the new ball moves around and you know, the conditions can be in a really really difficult. As an opening batsman, you don't probably want your best players to be exposed to the new ball right up front. So I think uh, if India might want to, you know, consider that in the future, uh, in, in, in the subcontinent conditions or maybe in Australia, you could probably have him at the top of the order. But yeah, he's, he's, he's a phenomenal player in all formats of the game. And yeah, India, India have got, got a real talent on their hands. Sure. I think hold that thought. I'll come back to you on the Rohit Sharma selection, which again, by the time the podcast is listened, would be decided the way Indian team is going by announcing their uh, plans. Uh, now this is my next question is for Abu. Uh, again, for each series, I mean, I've been watching cricket, I mean, close to what, 35 years. And, uh, you know, it's fair to recall, especially in overseas tour, for each series, there is like a couple of guys who score and there are like few guys who fail. And that's the law of averages. I don't have the names and numbers, but it always happens. So my question is regarding Mayank Agarwal. Twitter and fandom is quite unforgiving. We know that Kalka hero, Ajka zero, you know, that funda will never die. Uh, you can't become you know, ordinary one day and, you know, he has been pretty good uh, for India recently. So this is more in regard to what has happened in the first four innings and what happens Sydney. Is he someone who's, uh, if you were a selector, is his place in jeopardy? Uh, do you play six batsmen? Do you bring in Rohit Sharma? What do you do with Agarwal? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think it's a very tricky question considering how, you know, he. I think he still averages 15 test cricket despite this, you know, slump 
and it's hard, difficult to even call it a slump because it's really two tests. Even in New Zealand, I think he was our highest scorer, which is not, which doesn't say much. But I mean, it's telling in the sense that he managed to face bowlers in tough conditions. I think in the insofar as Mayank is considered. Uh, Concerned, I think we've seen that his technique has changed. I mean, there have you know, been a lot of photos of his backlift going around, and there's been some speculation that this was due to um, him, you know, tailoring it for the IPL during the lockdown. And that would make sense. I mean, a lot of um, batsmen have gone through that over the last 10, 15 years, and his IPL form did, incre- did improve considerably. So one could see that, you know, if this is, if the Indian team feels that this is a, you know, permanent change in his technique, then I think then I think he might be the one to go. But personally, I feel that he averages 50 in test cricket. He, um, he's shown his class against the same bowling attack in, the, in very similar conditions. And, you know, I'm guessing the conditions for the next test, which seems to be scheduled at Sydney for now, will be, um, will be far more batting friendly. So in that sense, I think Mayank has, should get another opportunity just to rediscover that form. And I think I think Mayank has to walk into the team at home, considering that he, you know, averaged some crazy amount last home season against South Africa and Bangladesh. So I don't I don't see the point in dropping him when he's shown in in these conditions. I mean, you don't have many batsmen in India who could perform like this in the in these conditions. And if you compare him to you know Rohit Sharma or Hanuma Vihari, the other two batsmen who might you know who might be fighting for a slot, I would say that Mayank still has to keep his place. Unless the Indian team really feels this is, you know, similar to a KL Rahul situation where he changed his technique for um, a limited overs cricket and his test form never recovered. In that case, I mean, obviously, you know, Shastri and Rahani are better judges of this. But in that case, then there might be a case for dropping him. Personally, I would play him again. Um, I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of Anuma Vyari, but I think just on form and in terms of the starts he's made, which, you know, I mean, he, play, he batted pretty well and he, did, he played an important role in the first innings here. But I think, um, I think Rohit Sharma has to come back in just because of the form he's in and he deserves, I mean, considering his home form, he deserves another opportunity in, um, you know, overseas. And this, this probably is the last stop for Rohit Sharma overseas. He's gotten a few opportunities in the last seven, eight years. And so I, I believe that he should get one more chance probably batting at um, number five where Vihari batted. This test, um, I think India will need five bowlers at Sydney, especially that it's considering that it's going to be it's likely to be a flat pitch, and you know if Omesh Yadav can't play, you'll have two fast bowlers probably with the combined experience of one test, um, Siraj and obviously whoever plays among Thakur, Natarajan, um, Saini. So I mean someone will be making their debut at Sydney. So I do think you need five bowlers there. So yeah, I, I would play I would play Mayank and I would play Rohit and unfortunately Bihari will have to make way, but I wouldn't be too concerned about that because I think Bihari is a very good option to bat in um, England and he made some starts there um, in his debut last time out. So I think I don't think this is you know it's indicative of Bihari's future Test career, but just in the very short term, I think both Mayank and Rohit should play. Sure. So Abu, one more question before I go back to Sanket and Rohit Sharma, so the chances and inclusion. Uh, how far is Cheteshwar Pujara's name again to be in the endangered list? Because uh, since that magical series, he's averaged 42 coming in here. 
he spent some time here cummins has had the measure of him by the time, by the way when cummins bowls to him in their personal rivalry cummins will be on a hat trick he's got him two successive balls so how far is pujara and uh, how worrisome it is for fans like me that his name if he fails here uh, if he's in is going to be again in the to be dropped list with the depth of this indian batting yeah yeah i think yeah i mean yeah i'm another pujara fan and i think and i think he should play i mean obviously there are going to be some concerns because he didn't do he didn't have his usual home form even in south africa even against south african bangladesh which yeah. is a bit concerning but considering the openers were making you know a bucket load of runs it wasn't too much of a problem back then but that'll be brought up now he's you know struggled against pat cummins but i honestly think that i mean obviously his name will be brought up in these discussions but i honestly think there should be no question around his place in the side at least at least until the end of the england home series um because i think you know he's been one of india's best batsmen at home the home series uh, the the last australia series was one of the best series that an indian batsman has played overseas in yeah is one of the best that i've seen personally i can only think of um dravid 2011 in england or sachin 2010 11 in south africa as you know comparison points for a bat- for an indian batsman dominating a high quality bowling attack like that consistently um in sena countries or overseas countries so in that sense i i think you know he obviously should get a lot of time um and honestly i i what i like to think of as a bit of a rule is that if you fail in two sena overseas cycles then maybe your spot should be in danger which was which is obviously the case with rohit sharma and since pujara succeeded last time i think I think he should keep his spot. I think I think he'll do well in Sydney considering the pitch. He scored a massive century there last time. And yeah, I think I don't I don't think there should be a quest any question around his spot. Maybe he needs to work something against uh Pat Cummins, but then again, Pat Cummins is such a tremendous bowler. I don't think yeah, I don't think it's too concerning that a player like Pujara is having problems against him right now. Hopefully he'll manage to, you know, play an innings even even in innings like the first innings at melbourne was very important for india because that was the toughest spell in the match cummins was literally breathing fire um, stark was bowling well hazelwood was uh, with his usual line and length and it could have very easily triggered a collapse but pujara's you know pujara faced i think like 70 80 balls which really helped india and made things easier for rahane vihari pant steady jalitter so i think even in that sense pujara can contribute to an um to a good indian batting effort even when he's not you know totally in form but yeah i think i think he he should get another 78 tests to perform and then maybe we can talk about his spot if he feels at home again uh, against england no not that your word is final word but it's very comforting for me and maybe other pujara fans but you know we all agree the only currency that matters is runs eventually he has to get his name back on that board so sanket Uh, let's talk about Rohit Sharma. You and I have spent, I think, few podcasts in the past when this podcast was new, talking about Rohit and how sometimes when the management was pushing him and how out of depth he was. That's the term I think we 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 used, especially in South Africa in 2018. So, a bit of a narrative and reality. Is it a blessing in disguise for him to miss the New Zealand tour because where Indian team struggled, bowling conditions were supreme for Bolt and Co. And now he also missed two tests here, of course, for known reasons. selection and quarantine and what not so do you agree with abu should an exception be made given you know the you know the big talent he is and the incredible home season he had 
because usually teams don't break uh, winning formulas of uh, playing 11. So, do you agree with Abu he should come in? Uh, part A of the question. And for who he should come in and then uh, uh, how do you measure his game against this attack when he hasn't played red ball in all of 2020? He'll be Actually, this test will be next year. So, yeah. Uh, talk about Rohit Sharma uh, comprehensively. Yeah, with regards to Rohit Sharma, I think it, you know when you're talking about Rohit Sharma's overseas performance, I think yeah, I think it's, it's been spoken about in the past as well. That if there's one country overseas, you know, in these Sena, Sena nations, that Rohit Sharma can succeed overseas, then it's Australia because the conditions here absolutely suit his style of play. If you don't generally get, you know, you know maybe it was not quite the case in the first couple of test matches because you had sideways moment as well. Uh, but you know, in general, you don't get a lot of sideways movement in Australia. Uh, the pitches are you know generally pretty good to bat on, and you, there's always that extra bounce, uh, you know, in the surface. And Rich Sharma is, is a terrific player against the top pitch delivery. He's a very good player, you know, who, who, can, who can play, who can ride ride on top of the bounce, and he, he can he can play the horizontal bat shots really well. And he he actually you know had a decent series in in 2018. He played a couple of Test matches, I believe. You know, he played, I think, the first test match, and then I think he missed one test match due to injury, and then I think one test match, I think he missed due to a paternity leave or something. But he, he got a half century in, in one of the tests, I think, at Melbourne, and uh, and, 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 in, and in one of the test matches at Adelaide, I think it was on day one, it was him and Pujaro actually repaired the Indian innings after their collapse for 24 or something like that uh, on in, in the opening session. It was Roy Sharma's counter-attack that actually you know, began India's India's comeback in that test match and he actually allowed Pujara to play himself in. So that was, you know, quite a crucial innings for Rohit Sharma. And he looked he looked really, really comfortable against the Australian seamers, which is basically the same pace attack that we have now. Uh, you know, Stark comments in case but that was the pace attack that played in twenty eighteen as well. And Rohit Sharma looked quite comfortable against him. And he's he's also played, you know, Mitchell Stark and Pat Cummins in particular extensively in limited overs cricket and his numbers against the duo are absolutely phenomenal. So yeah, obviously it's a different format. But even in Test cricket, it's in the short sample size. He's played them. His, his record is actually not too shabby against uh, against them. Against Australia, he's, he's, he struggled more against Nathan Lyon. Although I wouldn't really call it a struggle because more often than not, he's just been giving his wicket away, you know, uh, and, and playing rash shots. But that I think was probably more of a problem for Rohit Sharma batting at number six because he was coming in in situations where he has to play a more of a counter-attacking role and you know has to go after the bowling. Uh, didn't have a lot of partners to bat with. Now, I think as an opener, I think it's probably role is probably a lot more clear. I think you know even in limited overs cricket, we saw that Rohit Sharma that he was not not the greatest of success in the first half of his career uh, as a limited overs batsman in the middle order. Uh, but as an opener, he's, he's been one of the you know the one of the all time greats in, in ODI cricket. So you know I'm not saying that he's going to you know have a similar sort of transformation in Test cricket. Although he started off brilliantly at home, but in, a, in Australian conditions where the ball doesn't move around, I think he's more than equipped to deal with this with this bowling attack. And I, I also don't expect him to kind of make the same kind of mental errors that he's made against Nathan Lyon at the top of the order because he has more time to play himself in. I think he's a lot more clearer about his role. And, you know, also I think he's more secure about his spot in the team now after after the kind of success that he had against South Africa. He's, he's, he's pretty much a certainty in the side. So, yeah, I think he, I think he comes back in. For India and even at seven seas, I said, you know, after Virat Kohli, Roy Sharma is actually the guy that worries me the most from an Indian point of view. You know, personally, I, I personally did not think that Pujara was going to be a huge threat this time around, despite what is what he did in 2018. Because I always felt that you know 
if you don't have a good horizontal bat game, then you're not going to succeed in Australia for too long. Pujara batted exceptionally well in 2018. That was, you know, a result of him being incredibly patient. And the Australian bowlers probably not quite at their best, and they were not quite consistent enough. And they probably also were not, you know, they, they, they were probably also short on confidence after you know all that had that had transpired in the previous 10 months. You know, the sandpaper incident and all that sort of stuff. And yeah, it was just a perfect storm where you know India were peaking and. Yeah, I think Pujara had a brilliant series. But in general, I've always believed and need a good attacking game against against the short pitch delivery. Against you know, you've got to be able to play the horizontal bat shots to succeed in Australia. You know, and Rohit Sharma is arguably the best player of that you know in the Indian team of, along with Virat Kohli. So yeah, purely in terms of skill, I don't see any reason why he can't succeed. Obviously, as an opener, there will always be the first you know always be the threat in the first ten to fifteen overs. You know, especially against someone like Josh Hazel, who is incredibly accurate and who will just, you know, hone in around, you know, in that corridor of uncertainty. That is that is that is where, you know, the opportunity lies for Australia to get Roy Sharma early because you know his footwork is as you know we know that is is susceptible against the moving delivery. So if there is some movement early on, then yeah, you can always you know get him early. But if he survives that phase then he's, he's clearly has the ability to, you know, be a very, very damaging batsman in these kind of things. So yeah, I think he definitely someone that India should play and definitely from an Australian point of view is someone that I think worries me a lot and I think he would be a considerable upgrade on, 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 on the players, some of the players that they have in the team. Uh, I think, yeah, to answer your question about who is whom, whom, whom we should replace, I think, yeah, Mayank Agarwal should probably be the one to make way. I think, yeah, he had a, he had an okay series, you know, in 2018 which was his debut and he, he looked he looked quite good but then as I pointed out, there has been a change in his technique uh, and there's been quite a drastic change in his back lift, and you know it, it would be difficult for him to you know change that mid series. And he's, he's clearly looked you know completely out of sorts. It's, it's not just about you know at least with Pujara, yeah, you know that even when he's not getting runs, he's going to give you you know seventy to eighty deliveries of occupation even at the worst of times. So he's at least going to be able to you know soften up the new ball for the for the middle order. Whereas Mayank Agarwal is is hardly lasting. 10, 10 to 15 deliveries. So, yeah, he's, he's looking like a bit of a walking breaker at the moment, much like Joe Burns, you know, was for Australia. He's, he's thankfully been dropped now. So, yeah, I think Mike Agarwal should probably be the one who makes way. It, it's harsh because, you know, he's got a terrific record at home. He averages 50 plus in test cricket. But, yeah, I just don't see how he's going to score runs in this series, given the kind of form and given the kind of technical flaws that he's, he's got uh, and, uh, against this kind of bowling attack. Bihari hasn't got big runs, but yeah, I think he's technically looks far more short. And yeah, again, he's not someone that I'm expecting to get big runs in Australia because as I said, I think it's a very similar issue to Pujara. I don't think he has the attacking game to be able to impose himself on the Australian bowlers and put pressure back on them. But his, 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 his value, I think, lies in increased occupation and you know playing out the tough spells and making it making life easier for the stroke players uh, later later in the batting order, which is actually one of the reasons why in, in, before the before the second test, I had advocated opening with Bihari and actually having Shubman Gill coming in in the middle order because Gill is a stroke player and he's someone who can you know really take advantage against the against an older delivery. He can play the horizontal back shots. Bihari can be the one who can just you know face a lot of deliveries up front and you know soak up soak up the pressure and make life easier for you know, the guys coming coming later on in the batting order. But obviously they've, they've chosen to go with Gill at the top and he's done all right so. I suspect that Bihari will stay in the middle order and yeah, you could probably just you know bring Rohit Sharma in for Mayank Agarwal's straight swap. 
and yeah, I think that that would be yeah that would I think improve the Indian team greatly, especially at Sydney where it's generally a very flat surface. That is a surface where you can probably expect Rohit Sharma to do a lot of damage. Again, a lot of uh, nuance uh, unpacked there, and both these guys, I think Sanket and Abu, you can also find them on the Bear Us or Margins podcast, which they do it with Rahul Vishwanathan and a few other friends. Again, uh, knowledge powerhouse, all these guys tune into that podcast. I should have mentioned at the top of the show, but you will find all these technical analysis there as well. So my two seconds of nostalgia analogy, analogy coming up. I think uh, the last time, or the only time, an Indian batsman would have been part of a selection this awaited, like Rohit Sharma was in the 91-92 Azharuddin-led series when Navjo Sidhu was omitted from the selection uh, that the selection committee team uh, made. And then uh, there was a lot of uproar after India was humbled at Brisbane and Melbourne. So he was flown specially into uh, for the New Year's test in Sydney. And we were in, I think, school. I used to bring a transistor back then. And everybody was laughing. The first three innings, two in Sydney and one in Adelaide, Sidhu just scored one run at the average of 0.33. So I hope Rohit Sharma, for India's sake, uh, uh, 28 years later, fares better. Maybe the oldies will remember this. So that was my two cents of uh, a historical reference here between India and Australia. So before we talk about Australia, we've spoke, spent a lot on India and we have maybe close to 20 minutes left because these guys have another commitment after this. So, Abu, we have to talk about Ravi Ashwin. For every baller who makes a mark, there's like a counter, you know, a casualty on the batting end. So, Pujara and Cummins have had that rivalry in the series. Pujara scored maybe five, six runs facing like maybe 100-odd balls, totally being dominated by Pat Cummins. We have to talk about Ashwin. Uh, what he's done to Steve Smith. Of course, Steve Smith hasn't lasted more than, say, 20 balls when he's played Ashwin. So, talk about that, how big of impact that has had and uh, have you seen any changes uh, that the, this generation's best test batsman, uh, why is he struggling in Smith or you think he's just, again, a freaky, freakish, you know, couple of great deliveries? Did he make any lapses in, error, uh, in judgment? Talk about that, you know, the small time Smith has faced Ashwin and how big of an impact that has been on this series by Ravi Chandran Ashwin. Yeah, I think um, yeah, it's been incredible to see because my memory goes back to the 2011-12, you know, whitewash series, and just watching Ricky Ponting, Michael Clark, just hit Ravi Ashwin, just treat Ashwin like some you know club off spinner, and then something similar happened in 2014 with Steve Smith. Uh, Ashwin was obviously omitted from the first test when he came back. You know, he struggled again. So I mean, watching Ashwin succeed like this and overseas is. It's just extraordinary, really, to see a spinner coming in, you know, in the 10th over of a Boxing Day test against Australia and bowling incredibly well, especially against a batsman like Steve Smith. I don't think, you know, I don't, I, I'm not sure how, I'm, I think Steve Smith's too good of a batsman to be, you know, down in the pits for too long. It might just be one, you know, it might just have been two bad tests. It might even be a bad series and hopefully it is for India's sake. But uh, I think one of the things that's changed is that Ashwin, um, I think Ashwin around 2017-18 changed his action a bit, especially to tailor it more to overseas conditions. And since then, he's enjoyed some success. You know, there was that Edge Bastion test where he bowled really well in the first innings. There was Adelaide last time out where he took some key wickets in the first innings. And obviously, these two tests, he's bowled exceptionally well. And I think this is the first time Steve Smith has obviously faced him because he didn't face him. Um, he didn't face him in the 2018-19 series because of the ban, obviously. So I think 
Stephen might be struggling against this, you know, this new avatar of Ashwin. And um, I think he's he's also bowling a little a little quicker, I think. And Smith seems to be struggling against that. Um, I don't know how you know how long this will last. I think Steve Smith's too smart, too committed, and just far too talented to you know be stuck against the same baller for a while. And even I think in the second innings you saw that Steve he was really struggling against Ashwin, but he was playing with softer hands and he was managing to survive at the crease. You know, Smith sort of resembled Pujara almost um, in a way in the in that second innings, but then he got out to Bumrah. So I think that, and that also says a lot about this Indian attack. It's so relentless. You might, you know, you get through five overs of Ravi Ashwin and Smith was really struggling as, against Ashwin, but he got through that spell and then next you have just beat Bumrah steaming in, um, bowling an incredible line in length and eventually getting Smith both around his legs. So I think, yeah, I mean, Smith might continue to struggle, but yeah, I think we've seen that Ravi Ashwin is really a special bowler, the type that even, you know, Earlier, there used to be unfavorable comparisons to, you know, Harbhajan Singh or Anil Kumble's performance overseas. But now I think Ashwin might have even exceeded them, especially this series, the way he's been bowling. Um, it's, yeah, it's been, it's been incredible to watch. And if, I mean, that's where India's hope lies in the next two tests. If Ashwin can continue to be an attacking option, especially in the first innings, I think that's where India, you know, have a chance to win this series. Otherwise... We might struggle with, you know, basically with two and a half, uh, basically with two fit bowlers, Bumrah and Siraj, and then Thakur and Atrajan might have to come in, which will be interesting because neither of them have, you know, debuted at this level. So India will need Ashwin to continue performing like this and hopefully he can. Sure. All right, so let's talk Australia. We spent, you know, uh, way too much on India, but against, I guess, you know, they won the match, so they deserve more attention. So, Sanket, what's wrong with Australian batting? I know it's a very generic, basic question that you've been tweeting and talking about a lot. Our good friend, Kevin Framp, who lives in Melbourne, I was talking to him on Twitter the other day. He said the difference, India has a great bench is because of uh, the season when, you know, white ball cricket is played. India can still afford to have a good red ball structure while Australia's promotion of Big Bash is one of the big reasons why, where test, man, test match batsmanship is getting affected. Of course, there are a lot of... It, it's been coming. It's not like it just happened o- overnight. You know, priorities have shifted all over the world. Even England have a world-class white ball unit. But let's stick on Australia. Unpack the reasons that build your frustration. Why, when you see a Shubman Gill, but Australia really doesn't have that kind of uh, a depth and also... The reliance or over-reliance, if there's such a word, on Steve Smith gets magnified when you face a world-class bowling unit of Bumrah and Ashwin and Co. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think yeah, big, the big bash is is one of the factors. But you know, I think I think I think Australia's batting issues actually did, uh, you know, beyond the big bash, and I think it's 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 been coming for a long time now. You know, ever since that golden generation, they've not really produced consistent batsmen. In a consistent batting talent for you know actually a long time, Steve Smith was is is really the only outstanding you know batsman you know all conditions batsman of his generation. Uh, you know there there has been you know guys who have made a bit of an impression and then just just fallen apart. Look at something like Kawaja for example. Kawaja had a couple, great couple of years you know primarily in home conditions and had a couple of decent overseas, but never really consistent enough to nail down a long term spot in the team and then eventually. Really, you know, hasn't really performed to the level that was required. David Warner is again. I, I wouldn't really say that he's particularly a world-class batsman. He's, he's a great batsman in home conditions, but 
is you know his record overseas is you know well known. He's got issues against the moving ball in England. He's got issues against the turning ball in the subcontinent. His record overseas is among the worst, you know, for a touring batsman among those who played a sufficient number of Test matches uh, overseas. So it's it's just it's, it's always you know for the last decade, Steve Smith is only is the only real world class batsman in Australia produced who can play all around the world. And I think that this dates back to this back to well beyond the Big Bash period because even even towards the latter you know latter half or of the you know the Ponting tenure and Michael Clark tenure as well. Uh, these issues were apparent. Australia was struggling, you know, with with batting talent. You know, you saw the like, likes of Rob Quiney and you know, Ed Cowan and Alex Dolan and, and all these random players, you know, playing uh, playing a few Test matches for in Australia in the in the in the late two thousands and in the early two thousand and tens. So it's been coming for a long time. I wouldn't say it's, it's only in the last five or six years. It's probably a problem that I think dates back to maybe 12, 13 years ago. Which, which, which is you know, big bash has only been around for the last seven or eight years. So, yeah, I think, I think it's, it's been you know going on for a while. I, I mean, I'm not too sure what exactly is the reason for it. I think the big bash obviously doesn't help things uh, because you know it is played you know for you know entire two months and you know the entire first class season gets halted due to it. But uh, it's 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 obviously not ideal. But I think Australia probably less affected than you know a team like England, for for example, in that sense because the weather in Australia is generally better. So unlike England, if they, if they play with their first class cricket from you know, April to May and then they play in September, and you know maybe a little bit in between. But this these are the three months where they play majority of their first class cricket. They play often play in really wet conditions. They play end up playing on some real green tops, uh, and so that 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 obviously affects the quality of cricket that being played and. You know, this, you know, office obviously, you know, it doesn't really help the spinners as well. You know, so you don't really get batsmen who can, you know, a batsman who can play in different kinds of conditions. And you're, you're also, you know, not really encouraging the spin bowlers. And you're also not encouraging a lot of fast bowlers. And you generally all get those doubly, doubly medium pace, medium pace talent. Although England, I still have some good outstanding talent coming through purely because off the depth they've got they've got 18 counties so despite their despite their structural issues there's, there's, there's still enough enough talent coming through for a, a strong 15 to 16 man national squad to be built whereas with Australia Australia the talent pool is much smaller because we've only got six six state sites so you know the talent is a lot more concentrated but you know that that, that the downside to it is that you know if if, if if you don't have a great generation of talent coming through then you know it can it can get very difficult you know and it can can be difficult for some of the younger players for example who lose form and and they they get dropped from the state side they don't they they find it very difficult to you know get back into the mix because of the lack of opportunities in 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 state cricket due to the less number of teams which is i believe i think is 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 is, a, is, is becoming a problem but you know, it's 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 a combination of several things because it's the same structure that actually helped Australian cricket so well in the past. And in, in the six teams, uh, you know, was actually viewed as a major you know positive for Australian cricket. Uh, you know, when when Australia were at the peak, and you know, it was it was said that the Sheffield Shield was the best first class competition in the world due to the concentration of talent in just six teams. But now, when there is lack of depth, it's it's getting exposed a bit. The spinners also are not getting a lot of opportunities these days because. Uh, because of the you know there are only six teams and a few of them play their home matches in green tops or you know really bouncy wickets so you just have only two or three teams that play spinners regularly so that also affects the batsmen because batsmen don't end up playing you know quality spin on a regular basis and 
when they come come at test level and face the likes of Ravichandran and Ashwin, then yeah, that's just, that's just completely different step up in class. So I think it's just a combination of several things, uh, and I, I personally think the pitches have been a problem for you know the last few years. I think the pitches have you know play you know been way too extreme. You have get certain venues, you know, like you know, in Victoria, for example, you've got Melbourne, or you know, there are also some of the you know matches that are being played at out venues that are in the outskirts, which are not you know, regular first class venues, but you know, those often produce some really flat tickets. Whereas you know, get certain other venues like Hobart or Brisbane, which has which is, which has got complete green tops, and you've got one fifty plays two hundred kind of games. So neither are particularly helpful for building a long term test team because on one on one hand you get you're getting tough conditions. The batsmen are just unable to, you know, occupy time in the crease, and, and I always believe that when you're playing in extremely tough conditions, you, 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 your technique is not really developed properly because those are chancy conditions where, you know, your batsmen are often encouraged to just throw the bat around and get a, get a quick fire 30 or 40 because that might well just win the match because the conditions are a bit of a lottery. And, you know, on a flat track, obviously, you're not tested enough because, you know, the ball is not doing enough on the surface, the weight. So, you know, you can just, you know, Get on the front foot and you know just step through the line of form. So I think for 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 I think any 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 good first class class, I think the quality of the pitches is is of primary importance. And you need, you need a good balance of pitches, and especially when you've got only six teams and you know, playing each other, there are only six venues. So I think it's very important that all the venues actually produce wickets that are you know that I that, that are good for cricket, and they're not just you know, win matches outright and to help their own cause. But because you know teams often produce pitches as, as for their strengths to win matches, uh, and you know they end up you know getting the result, the required result, but not doing anything to produce cricketers that wants to cause the national side. So that's a problem. I think that's something that the cricket industry they have to you know take into account, and they've got to you know I think have a better regulation over the pitches. Where you've got to have pitches that plus something that everyone. I thought the Manbum pitch for this test match is a brilliant picket because it had everything. You had to see movement early on. It had turn for the spinners, you know, and you know, obviously good batsmen could also score runs. It was not unplayable by any means, you know. It was definitely not as unplayable as the spinner batsmen made it look out to be. So I think, yeah, I think good pitches are obviously the order of the day, especially you know for Australia, which has got you know such a few number of first class teams. They cannot afford to get the balance wrong whatsoever. So yeah, I think, I think, I think the pitches, and I think as I said, with the big bats, everybody, you know, that's that's here to stay. So I personally would not, you know, go too too much into that because that's realistically it's not going to happen that you know the big bash is going to get get get, get shifted to another part of the season. The big bash will continue to stay in December and January, which is the you know, festive season in Australia, and it is you know you know it is ideally designed in that way so that you know, the kids can also attend the matches and it's, and it's, it's, it's a profit making product for the Australia. So and I think Australia Australia is because of the weather in Australia, I think. They probably still have decent wickets even outside that period. Unlike in England, for example, where, where I mentioned it, where you get you, know, you, you get a few months of good weather. If you play you just T20 cricket and during that period, then your first class period can get seriously affected. That's not why the case for Australia. I think Australia are luckier in that sense for the weather. So you can still produce good wickets, you know, in, in the early part of the season and the second half of the season as well. If the curators are willing to do so, if the you know the state associations are actually willing to buy into this idea of, you know. Being fair and producing good wickets rather than just trying to win matches for their own. So that's something that you know, if cricket Australia wants the strongest Australian side, then that's something that they they'll have to you know, take into account. And I think also uh, the the the, the issues at grassroots level as well in terms of the coaching that they're receiving, you know, 
and so and often it's a cycle in Australia. I think the cycle has gone on way too long for the speaker, so it's definitely a matter of concern. Uh, and yeah, that got to got to rethink. You know some of the things that I mentioned. Maybe there might there might be other issues. Like it's something that's very difficult for me to tell when I'm sitting from here. But yeah, I think they've got to look at you know the pitches and the quality of the board thing, and you know, and just you know just and maybe just find a couple of you know freakish talents. That 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 might just just change the whole picture because ultimately cricket you just need you know you don't need you know what two hundred cricketers. Two hundred good cricketers in a in a single country. If you get twenty good cricketers, then you've got a serious cricket team. So it's just you know about finding the right balance. And hopefully, you know, the cycle has gone on way too long. We'll you know, get another another someone very soon uh, who can you know be the next Steve Smith or the next Steve Ponting. They can you know take on the responsibility because Steve Smith is not getting any younger. And so yeah, I think Australia definitely needs to press the batting sooner rather than later. Sure. Uh, that's uh, again. Um, there's no shortage of views when it comes to Australia, and Sanket is, you know, the in-house expert. All right. So Abu, uh, we saw the young Cameron Green. You know, uh, made uh, his impressive appearance uh, at this MCG Test. Where does this uh, stand in the void that Australian team has had uh, for a genuine all-rounder? Of course, you know he has to be nurtured, right? And you know, with the demands of international cricket, he's a big bloke. So again, we'll need a different kind of. Uh, maintenance by the Australian team management, how they manage his career. But how impressed were you to see him function in all facets of the game? Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's it's pretty scary from an Indian perspective to see, you know, Australia come up with an all-rounder like this because, I mean, I think there was a great Jared Kimber piece about how, you know, Australia haven't had an all-rounder like this since maybe Keith Miller or Richie Benham back in the 50s and the 60s. So, yeah, just seeing, you know, Cam Green, who averages, I think, above 50 in first-class cricket and less than 22, less than about 22, 23 with the ball in first-class cricket. I mean, it's just, it's scary. And, like, you saw him struggle in the first test. I don't think he picked Ashwin at all. But then the way he fought back and the way, you know, the speed with which he learned and the way he batted in the second innings of the second test was, yeah, it was very impressive. And I think Cam Green's going to be, he's go, he's going to play... I mean, obviously, you know, development and injuries and all, but if he stays fit and if he stays on track, I think he's going to play test cricket for a long time and he's going to be a very scary prospect for the rest of the world. I mean, pace bowling around is always tricky. Um, you, you always want to, you know, nurture them very carefully to ensure that they aren't overworked, that they, you know, that they don't end up bowling like 30 overs in a test, uh, 30 overs in a test innings because in that case, who knows? But the way he's looking and I mean, his bowling's also been very impressive in the sense that he's been so accurate and um, so disciplined with his line and length. At least I think he struggled a bit against um, Rahane and Pant in the first innings of the MCG test. But otherwise, apart from that one spell, I think he's, yeah, he's been very good with the ball. He hasn't picked up any wickets, but that sort of discipline in your, you know, first two tests against, you know what, apart from 36 and all out and everything is still a very good, uh, uh, test batting lineup is very impressive and shows that you know he can develop into some player. And frankly, honestly, I think I mean, I know there's a lot of doom and gloom in Australia right now, but honestly, I think Australia have quite a lot of talent coming through. I mean, you know, there's Will Pukowski, there's Ga- I mean, Gamwin. Pukowski's obviously struggled with the concussions and all, but I mean, he he did well, he's done well in first class cricket, averages more than 50. Um, even, I mean, even in the tour game, 
because I think you saw, you know, pretty high quality Indian attacks and Cam Reed scored a century. Um, ben McDermott got a century. I think Jake Wilderman got a century. So that shows that, you know, they're like, I mean, obviously there's the problems that Sankit outlined, but they might, you know, they might find the players very soon. And in that case, I think the rest of the world needs to watch out because if Australia have, you know, good batting lineup around Smith and Labuschagne and Warner, if they develop, if they find two, three more players, I don't, yeah, I don't see how any team will have a chance against Australia, especially at home, for a while. So honestly, that's why I think the series is so important for India as well, because you know we've waited so long to you know do well against Australia overseas, but and I think we might have to wait for some time if Australia continue you know to develop players as they have been over the last few years, especially with the ball. Sure. So let's wrap this up. I'll give you both two minutes each uh, because I know you have another place to be. So my WhatsApp group where, you know, some of my closest friends listen to this podcast, we discussed this, which again was discussed everywhere in the last week. This Australian attack versus the Lee McGraw Gillespie one attack. So again, there are a lot of numbers and it's a small sample size. I think there was, they use a 16 test, I think, yardstick, what those guys played and what they have done. So Sanket, you can go first. Uh, how do you measure the two attacks and uh, also throw in, you know, there's a other factor who you're bowling against, but then you've all, always made the case that this era is slightly difficult, the most difficult for batting. So how do you differentiate the two attacks and which one has the edge? Uh, throw it, fire away. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think, you know, if you're comparing the two bowling attacks, it's, and I think one big difference, obviously, in the two attacks is that you know, train one. Nathan Lyon is a perfectly decent test bowler. Is you know I would say he's probably the greatest off spinner that I've ever produced. Uh, but yeah, he's no he's no he's no Shane Warne. Let's put it that way. And Shane Warne is, is the greatest spin bowler to ever play test cricket. So yeah, I think that's that's obviously a big big difference. I, I, and you know I think I think one thing that I need to point out with regards to this bowling attack is that you know you know apart from Pat Cummins, you know the, the other two seamers they've not had that much success away from home. You know, Mitchell Stark is someone that I've, you know, expressed my concerns over in the past as well, that he doesn't quite have the discipline, you know, required to, you know, be a consistent bowler at test level against, you know, top quality opposition. He seems to be, you know, on the way to, you know, rectifying that. He's bowled really well in this series with great amount of control and he's, and he's changed his action, you know, which, which he did actually last summer. And which which seems to be you know giving him more 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 greater degree of control and which is why he seems to be you know bowling a lot better against you know a team like India against whom he has struggled in the past and Josh Hazelwood again is 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 done well at home he's done well in England and in the Indies with the huge ball but his record in you know in 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 the subcontinent is not the greatest his record in South Africa is not the greatest uh, so yeah I think. This this attack, this bowling attack, apart from Pat Cummins, they still I think got a, a lot to prove away from home because you know apart from Pat Cummins, who have just I think around seventeen or eighteen away from home, you know, we've got Mitchell Stark and Josh Hayes puts averages away from home over the last you know three or four years ever since Pat Cummins made his dip, uh, made his comeback into the side during the India tour, they both averaged in the thirties. Uh, I think his little average is something like thirty one. Thirty-two and Mitchell Stark averages you know, thirty-five and thirty-six, so that's that's a pretty high average, you know, especially in this bowler bowler friendly era. Nathan Lyon is again, you know, as I said, he's, 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 he's a very good bowler, but he's not quite a Shane Warne. And yeah, I don't think this bowling attack still has a Glenn McGrath. You know, Pat Cummins is is, is the closest, and he's, he's he's an absolutely phenomenal bowler. But McGrath was, I think, in my opinion, McGrath is the greatest Test bowler who ever lived. And his, his record all over the world is just absolutely, 
you know, phenomenal. Is is has the longevity as well. 563 Test wickets. It's, it's done well. You know, everywhere he's gone. Phenomenal record at home. England. You know, we all know what he's done to English batsmen. You know, all those years ago, and he's been phenomenal in the subcontinent as well. So yeah, I mean, uh, none of these bowlers, you know, have won a Test series in the subcontinent yet. You know, and now apart from once, uh, they've, they've they've drawn one series in Bangladesh, um, which you know against Stark, Stark missed Hazelwood was also not a part of the series. Cummins and Lyon were the, were the two guys who bowled well in that series, and, and even then they couldn't win the series. They only managed to draw a series. The last time Australia won a Test series in the subcontinent. Was in, in was in Sri Lanka in 2011. When none of these guys, none of the seamers rather had debuted. Nathan Lyon was himself making his debut in that series. But I think that tells you that you know they've still got uh, quite a, quite a bit to prove. From uh, they, they've got to win something in the subcontinent. They've got to probably you know ideally, and I would like to see them win a series in England. Although I personally wouldn't hold that against them because they did everything that they could last year to win a series in England. It was ultimately the batting apart from Steve Smith and Manus Labuschagne that let us down. Uh, and they got a two better in South Africa as well because you know South Africa won in in, in 2018 you know with this with the same quartet and you know we all saw what happened with the sandpaper incident and all that the polling just completely dramatically fell apart you know for a little while after that incident so I still think this bowling attack is, is the jury is still out on them away from home ice. they've got they've definitely got the potential that you know, uh, you know the likes of Cummins and Hazel would still have age on their side. Uh, Nathan Lyons can not too old for a spin bowler. So, yeah, I think they should still have one more cycle of, you know, away tours in them where they should be at their peaks and hopefully, you know, convert, you know, some of the series draws and defeats that they've you know, experienced into series wins. Obviously, they'll need better support from the batsmen for that. Uh, but, yeah, I think they need to, you know, I think they need to do better away from home to be, you know, considered on par with that bowling unit because that bowling unit, and even though they had, you know, probably a third, Weakness in Bradley, who's the third seamer, I think probably you can say that he's, he's comfortably a worse test bowler than any of the three seamers in this attack. But yeah, this this bowling attack does not have a Glenn McGrath. This, this bowling attack does not have a Shane Warne. And you know, even Jason Gillespie was a phenomenal bowler you know, in all conditions. He's won Australia Test Series in India and he's done well in Sri Lanka. So yeah, none of these bowlers have you know come quite quite come close to you know. Uh, you know, replicating that achievement. So I think I think I would still wait a bit. They've got, definitely got the potential, but yeah, I still think they've got a bit more to prove to be you know quite considered on that level yet. Sure, Abu. Uh, so parting thoughts on the same question. The way Sanket measured, if you want to add something. Yeah, yeah. I would. Um, I agree completely with Sanket. Um, I think. I think. Um, in every like, if you compare everyone in the current attack to their counterpart from that attack. I think there's a slight edge to that attack, except for um, Stark and Lee. I would say that Stark's probably a slightly better um, bowler than Brett Lee, and I think the numbers bear that out. But then again, Shane Warne was is the greatest spinner to have ever played Test cricket. Nathan Hiles, a great bowler, as Sanket said. In terms of Hazelwood Gillespie, I think I think it's actually Sanket who pointed this out to me. Hazelwood's you know stats in Asia aren't comparable, and Gillespie obviously bowled exceptionally well in that 2004 India tour. So you would have to give Gillespie the edge. And then in terms of Cummins and McGrath, I mean, Cummins is, has been bowling as well as anyone has recently, but he has to do it for six, seven more years. He has to do it again in Asia uh, to even, you know, come into the same conversation as McGrath. 
I mean, but what what is special about this attack is that I would say that Bradley is maybe the greatest, you know, fourth. Um, not Bradley, sorry. Uh, Mitchell Stark is maybe the greatest uh, fourth option any attack has had um, in years. Maybe I think the only comparison I could think of was again Bradley, but I would say Stark's a better bowler than Lee, or maybe you know. Um, late Imran Khan when he was bowling with uh, Vaseem Wakar and Abdul Qadir. Um, yeah, I would say that's it. Uh, I mean, I think um, Vaseem Akram, Sakhlein, Mukhtar, Wakar Yunus and uh, Shoaib Akhtar would have been that, but they only played two tests together. So you can't really, you know, stick them up there. But yeah, I would say Stark is one of the best fourth options ever. And that really speaks to the depth of this attack. And then Maybe you have James Patterson backing it up. Maybe yeah, one one thing, Sorry, one thing that I'd like to add is that the yeah, one thing I'd like to add that's the one one advantage that this attack has as over you know maybe the two thousand and three you know the, the the great attack that you just spoke about. I think we've got better depth outside the front three. I think you know you know if you, if you just compare the first choice attacks, then I as I said you know McGraw, Vaughan, and Gillespie are in a completely different level altogether to you know what we have right now. None of these guys have grown themselves away from yet, but. You know, if you look at the backup and when Madra and Juan were injured in the 2003 series that we just we, we just spoke about earlier in the podcast, for example, you know, Australia's attack was quite weak. We had, you know, Nathan Bracken and, you know, Brendan, Brad Williams and, you know, those guys, you know, playing this cricket. Whereas now, you know, we've got James Pattinson who's got a test average of 25 on the bench. There's Jai Richardson as well who's got a fantastic first-class record of goals at 145 clicks. He's a great prospect and he can't even make the spot. There's Michael Beeser as well. He's great all-rounders. Got a great first-class I would say that this attack definitely has much better pace bowling depth behind the pace bowling depth behind the you know the the, the, the first first choice seamers. But yeah, if, if you compare the best bowlers of this side to the best bowlers of that era, then yeah, I think they they the the, the Magra generation is still comfortably ahead. Yeah, and then I think you both said that this attack would need some able support from their batting partners uh, to succeed in overseas tours, which uh, I think Magra generation had an ample. So I thank you both uh, for staying extra 20 minutes. This was a fun podcast. I learned a lot and I urge uh, whatever little listeners I have here, go and check out my friends at uh, the Bearers of Margins. These guys do great work and uh, add a lot of value in terms of analysis and views. So thank you, Abu, for making your debut here. Hopefully we can do this again. And thanks, Sanket. And there's no need to thank you. This was, you know, this, you've helped build this podcast as much as I have. Hopefully we can, you know, have uh, you both again in the near future. Thank you so much. Thanks, thanks, thanks. Great, great, for that. great to be back, Sarkis.